Good morning, church family. Uh, we will be having uh, two Bible readings today, and the first one will be found uh, in Genesis 14, uh, verses 13 through to 24. That's Genesis 14, 13, uh, verse 13 through to 24. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Anur. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaemo, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur Eshkol and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. Morning, church. Our second reading is coming from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 28. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for you are still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever saved at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of whom, of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted from the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God. Thanks uh, so much, Josephine, Jared, for those readings. I want to pray with me once more just before we come to this word. Heavenly Father, we know that to see you, to know you, comes only by your mercy, it comes only by your Son. We long to see him in all his glory for who he is. And so we ask that you would reveal him in the power of your Spirit through the lens of Melchizedek this morning. Please help us, Lord. Please help us that we might see him, and that in seeing him, we might be forever changed. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's amazing what desperate people will do. It's amazing how desperation will cloud your judgment. 
I've known some very, I'm sure you have as well, some very common sense people make the most horrendous decisions when they're desperate. A few examples. A grieving widow marries the wrong man within months of her husband passing. A broken businessman risks all of his closest relationships by trying to market a pyramid scheme to his family and friends. A young man who craves recognition wrecks his prospects by stealing from his company to buy that recognition. An old man battling loneliness ruins his life's work and his reputation by finding solace in an affair. None of those are hypothetical. All of them are real. And we all know of similar scenarios. People do strange, irrational things when they're desperate, and people of faith are no different. We get into desperate spaces, and we do stupid things in those spaces. We turn our backs on what we know is true and what we know actually works, and we grasp for the nearest alternative. The church that first received this letter was tempted in that direction. We who receive it today are tempted in the very same direction. So what does it say to us all? What does this letter say to us all? All of us who are tempted in that direction, tempted to grasp for alternatives. To answer that, we have to do business with a very mysterious character. We have to do business with Melchizedek, and that's not easy. So you're going to have to bear with me this morning. It's not easy because there are only three verses in the whole of the Old Testament devoted to telling his story. And those three verses are just an interruption, interruption of, the, of another story, of the main story. So effectively, you have a footnote of three verses to decide who Melchizedek is and why he matters. And yet it's clear that he does matter. Because by the time you get to the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews devotes, devotes a whole chapter to this mysterious character. Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. So we better have a closer look. And to do that, we go back to the source, to Genesis 14. We didn't read the whole thing mainly because I wanted to spare Jared those ridiculous names at the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, so we didn't read the whole thing. So I'll, I'll fill you in. I'll do my best to fill you in. It's the time of, time of Abram. Uh, at that time, what, what we know as Israel was a little bit like the Wild West. Canaan was a pretty lawless, chaotic place. There were constant skirmishes between rival warlords, uh, raids and then counter-raids. Genesis 14 paints a picture of that chaos for us. So it starts with an alliance of four kings up in the north in Mesopotamia, uh, and they lead a raiding party south. So if you imagine, uh, here's a, an imaginary map of, of Israel as we know today. Here's the Jordan River uh, dividing east from west. They started up in the north in Mesopotamia. They worked their way down uh, the eastern valley of the Jordan River. And uh, they conquered the cities as they went. City after city fell. On the way down, they conquered Sodom. Now, you should know that name. Uh, that's where Abram's nephew Lot decided to set up camp. So Lot was living in Sodom. They conquered Sodom. They took Lot captive. They carried on south. When they finally reached the Red Sea, they turned north. They headed for home. But this time, they did it up the western side of the Jordan River Valley. In the meantime, Abram hears about Lot. 
He's not standing for this. He raises a small army. He chases the raiders all the way up north, all the way to Dan, which is about as far north as you can go in Israel. He chases them up to Dan. He catches up with them. He conquers them. He defeats them. Uh, He heads back down south with everything that they've stolen, including the people. On the way home, he's met by two kings, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. These are two very different encounters. The king of Sodom barely thanked Abram, but he credits him with the victory and he offers him a share of the spoils. Abram declines the offer because by now he knows that this victory was not his. It was the blessing of God most high. He didn't want any credit for the victory. He refused the spoils because he didn't want to take the promised land by force. He didn't want the blessing of God to be tainted by his own independent human effort. And so his interaction with the king of Sodom is a little bit tense and a little bit awkward. His interaction with the king of Salem was something entirely different. The king of Salem refreshes him with gifts of bread and wine, which he gladly receives. The king of Salem insists, he's the one who insists that this this victory was the blessing of God most high. And Abram responds to this truth from God by giving his priest a tenth of the spoils with which to honor God in return. The king of Salem, the priest of God most high, is Melchizedek. And this is how the writer to the Hebrews describes him centuries later. So now we're reading, we're back in Hebrews chapter 7, reading from verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What does the writer want us to know about this Melchizedek? Well, you can see from those verses a number of things. The priest of God Most High was also the king of Salem. Salem is present-day Jerusalem. This king was by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness. So Melchi, King, Zedek, Righteousness. King of Righteousness. He's also King of Salem, which is close to the Hebrew word for peace, Shalom. King of Salem, King of Peace. That makes him King of Righteousness and King of Peace. Genesis is a book full of genealogies. Full of genealogies. They're on every other page. It's the parts we love to skip. Get back to the narrative. But this priest king has no genealogy. It's actually quite striking. No genealogy. We know nothing of his heritage. And that leads us to the thing that the writer really wants us to see in verse 3. This Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. He's not identical to the Son of God. It's unlikely that he's a pre-incarnate form of the Lord Jesus, not that those don't exist. But here it says explicitly that he resembles the Son of God. He is like the Son of God. He's a pattern of the Son of God. There are similarities. He's a shadow giving us the outline of who the Son of God will be. 
And just as an aside, this is often how Old Testament prophecy works. It establishes a pattern in history that recurs and recurs and recurs and until it is finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the real thing. So you see the shadow coming around the corner and then you meet the man in flesh and blood. So it is with Melchizedek. This pattern is what the writer to the Hebrews wants us to see. And he wants us to see it so that he can prove, number one, that Jesus belongs to an ancient priesthood with real Old Testament credentials. But also, number two, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Now, why does he need to prove that? Why does he go to such great lengths to prove that? And here we come the full circle. Because this church was desperate. Because they were looking for the nearest alternative. And as Jewish Christians, the nearest alternative was to return to the Jewish law and its Levitical priesthood. Now, when we talk about the Levitical priesthood, that's the priesthood we all know from our reading of the Old Testament. You know, the priests, the sacrifices at the altar, all those rituals. When you, when you think of that stuff, everything that goes with the Old Testament cults, that's the Levitical priesthood. And these Christians would have been tempted to return to all of that. That was their comfort zone. They were Jewish Christians. That was their sweet spot, their default. So the writer wants to show that Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He belongs to a better priesthood. He's in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Levi. And he shows all of that. He shows that the order of Melchizedek is better in three ways because of three things. Number one, God's blessing. Number two, God's word. And number three, God's man. So the order of Melchizedek is better because of God's blessing, God's word, and God's man. All right. Are you still with me? Stay strapped in. We've got a bit of a ways to go still, right? Uh, Melchizedek is not simple, but there's a richness to understanding who he is so that we can understand why he matters, which is what we're trying to do. So stay with me. All right, number one, the order of Melchizedek is a channel of God's blessing. Hebrews 7 verse 6 describes his meeting with Abraham like this. But this man, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abram, Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. He received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now what we mustn't forget is that two chapters before Genesis 14, just two chapters, you have Genesis 12. And this is what we read in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is the Lord who blesses Abram. And in Genesis 14, just two, two chapters later, he does that. How? Through Melchizedek. So that the writer to the Hebrews can conclude, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abram, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. And Abram knew it. 
And that's why he responded to God's blessing with thanksgiving and allegiance by paying tithes to God Most High through this priest, through Melchizedek. So the blessing comes from God through Melchizedek to Abram. Abram responds with thanksgiving and praise through Melchizedek to God. Are you seeing the pattern starting to develop? Hebrews 7 verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. One might even say, verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We need to get the family tree right here. The writer is saying that the whole nation of Israel to this very day pays tithes to Melchizedek to be paid on to God Most High. They pay their tithes to the Levites, but here's the family tree. Remember, Levi, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, right? So Levi's there in the loins of his ancestor Abram, paying the tithe on behalf of all of Israel to God Most High through who? Through Melchizedek. The lesser priesthood serves and honors the greater priesthood. Writers showing from the Old Testament that there is one greater than Levi, that there is one even greater than our forefather Abraham, father of the nation. And maybe all of this is what Jesus had in mind when the Jews asked him, are you greater than our father Abraham? It wasn't a question, it was an accusation. And he responded, before Abraham was, I am. And when the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, is he not just confirming what the writer to the Hebrews is claiming, that the order of Melchizedek is the channel of God's blessing? Jesus Christ who is high priest in the order of Melchizedek, is the ultimate channel of God's blessing. God's blessings come to us only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. First reason why the order of Melchizedek is superior, God's blessing. It's a channel of God's blessing. Second reason, it is ordained by God's word. Hebrews 7 verse 11, we read this. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need could there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? can sound a little bit complicated, but actually it's quite simple. If the Levitical priesthood was perfect, why did God raise another priest in the order of Melchizedek? It's a simple argument, isn't it? Can you add anything to perfection? No. Therefore, something must be missing. Clearly, something is missing from the Levitical priesthood. What is it? It's deficient in some way. And then the writer draws on Psalm 110 to make this point. Psalm 110 reads as follows. I'll read it for you. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's the Messiah, the coming king in the line of David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse 4, 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see that this coming Davidic king is also a priest. God is doing something new, right? Something old, but something new. Priest and king are one. The Messiah, the king, is also going to be a priest. But not in the Levitical order, in another order, in the order of Melchizedek. And notice that he, in Psalm 110, he doesn't just anoint him king. He doesn't just anoint him priest. He swears it by an unbreakable oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Levi. No, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Our writer picks this up in 7 verse 19. In the order of Melchizedek, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then he concludes, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What we know as the new covenant. There was something like 80 Levitical high priests from Aaron, who was a Levite. So that's Aaron, the brother of Moses. Uh, everything we said around Old Testament priesthood, we know is bound up in Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. From Aaron, all the way through to the destruction of the second temple when Israel lost everything, the king, the land, the temple, everything. 80 Levitical high priests. You can trace the succession. Not one of them got this kind of endorsement from God Most High. Not one. The order of Melchizedek is ordained and secured and guaranteed by God's oath, by his promise, by his own word. Third and final reason. Are you still with me? What are we trying to do? We're trying to understand Melchizedek so we can understand why he's important, why he was important, and why he's important to us today, what it means for us as we seek to follow a priest in his order. The order of Melchizedek, third reason, is superior because it is fulfilled by God's man. Two things we need to consider about God's man, his term and his character. His term is forever. Listen to how the lengths that the writer goes to stress this one point. His term is forever. Verse 3, if you're following, look at these verses. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, mortal men, men who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Succession in the Levitical priesthood was based on birth and was constantly being interrupted by death. In the order of Melchizedek, as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, there is no succession. The priesthood lasted forever by the power of an indestructible life. By his divine, eternal nature, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is your priest forever. Now we actually need to stop and think about what we're saying. Because someone holding an office forever can either make you rejoice or it can make you weep, depending on their character. There are some office bearers, we thank God for the end of their term. Four years is enough. 27 years is enough. Where is he? (laughs) Totally kidding. It all comes down to character. Character matters. This is how the writer says it in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The high priest in the order of Melchizedek is a man of perfect character, and that matters because he is ours forever. It also matters because holiness is a beautiful thing. And perfect holiness is perfectly beautiful. If we went down to the Mall of Africa or maybe across to Boulders and we played a word association game with people and I held up a board that says holy, what kind of words do you think they might throw back? I shudder to think. Maybe words like self-righteous, judgmental, ugly, boring, angry. That couldn't be further from the truth. That really is one of the devil's great lies. Listen to um, Jonathan Edwards on holiness. So holiness has kind of gone out of fashion. That's why you have to go to the old guys to hear what they thought about it. But listen to what he says. Holiness is a most beautiful and lovely thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. Tis the highest beauty, vastly above all other beauties. Tis of sweet, pleasant, charming, lovely, amiable, delightful, serene, calm, and still nature. Tis almost too high a beauty for any creatures to be adorned with. It makes the soul a little and delightful image of the blessed Jehovah. Holiness is a beautiful thing. We don't, we don't see mature holiness often, but you know it when you see it, right? You know it when you see it. And Jesus is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good and perfectly powerful, and he lives forever to bless us with those qualities. So character matters. It matters. It matters because our priest is forever. He's ours forever. It matters because holiness is a beautiful thing. 
But the main reason it matters in the context of Hebrews chapter 7 is in verse 27. The priest in the order of Melchizedek has no need like Levitical high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then only for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Other priests are supposed to atone for the people, but first they have to atone for their own sins. That's a bit like you robbed the bank and your defense attorney was the driver. It's going to compromise your defense, uh, to say the least. But Jesus has nothing to atone for. Nothing. He isn't compromised in any way whatsoever. He is the perfect priest. And he offers the perfect sacrifice. He offers himself. We'll say more on that in a moment. For now, we simply want to see that the order of Melchizedek is better because it brings God's blessing. It is guaranteed by God's word. It is fulfilled by God's own son. God's blessing, God's word, God's man. What does that mean for us? Faithful people across the ages have actually desired God's presence. They've desired God's presence. When we're unfaithful, when we're trapped in unbelief, God's presence is the thing we want lost. We want to run in the opposite direction. Faithful people have desired his presence. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He describes this desire as he reads it in the Psalms. So this is what he writes. This is the living center of Judaism. These poets knew far less reason than we know for loving God. They did not know that he had offered them eternal joy, still less that he would die to win it for them. Yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in their best moments. They long to live all their days in the temple so that they may constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of the Lord is like a physical thirst. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house. Only there can they be at ease like a bird in the nest. One day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere. In our better moments, we long for God's presence. We crave God's presence. We hunger and thirst after God's presence. But because we are sinners, we have to have a mediator. We can't take it for ourselves. In his holiness, he remains infinitely attractive, he also remains a consuming fire. We need a mediator, we need a priest. The Jewish Christians in this first century church, they longed for God's presence. They knew Christ was the only mediator of that presence. But they were desperate. And so they started to reach for alternatives. And for them... Hebrews chapter 7 meant don't go back to the Jewish law and to the Levitical priesthood. He's so clear in this chapter. Don't go back. Listen to how the chapter ends. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made 
perfect forever. You need a priest. Don't go back to the law to find an inferior one who can't do the job. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That means where the Levitical priests will and have failed, he has succeeded. Don't go back to the Jewish law and the Jewish priesthood. You have the real thing. You have Jesus. There is no other. Don't go back. That's what it meant to the first readers. What about for the rest of us? Well, surely it has to mean don't go to any alternative. Don't go to any alternative. The very thing we are tempted to do when we are desperate, to leave that which we know is true, that which we know works, and go off after something else. Don't do it. So what's your alternative? When you are desperate, where do you go besides Jesus? And I really want you to let that question land on your soul. If you're like me, we can think of ten alternatives for, for, that, for so-and-so. Oh, I know where they go. I'm not, that's not the question. That's not the question of Hebrews 7. The question of Hebrews 7 is what is your alternative? Where do you go? How do you try and access the presence of God on your own terms? Maybe it's through the pleasures of this life. You try and create your own little heaven on earth. So you move from experience to experience. You live for the weekend, the holiday, the promotion, the upgrade, the renovation. It doesn't sound like religion, but it is. It's an attempt to replicate the presence of God in our lives on our terms. It's an attempt to make heaven here on earth. It even comes out in our language. So when two ladies are speaking about the new bathroom tiles or the kitchen counter or the weekend away at that resort, what word do they use? It was divine. This is one common middle-class way of manufacturing the presence of God in our lives. Lifestyle, pleasure. As soon as one experience ends, you're desperately planning the next one. Because you are terrified to pause and think about what happens when the music stops, when the lights come on, when the party's over. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you go a much more direct route. Most of the time, Jesus is enough. But lately, you've been going through so much that your family have started to put you under pressure. They're starting to say that all of this is because you are ignoring your ancestors. They're saying, listen, you can have your Jesus, but that doesn't mean you need to disrespect your culture and your heritage. Just come home. We'll go to the graveside. We'll sort all of this out. That's a very tempting alternative for many of us. Many of you have expressed that temptation. A temptation that's very real in your lives, in our lives, as a church family. But maybe that's not you. If it's not, then what is your alternative? Maybe it's the man of God. Maybe it's worth, maybe he's worth a thousand rand for prayer. Two thousand rand for anointing with oil. Fifteen hundred rand for holy water. I mean, he does seem to have access to God's presence. 
It does seem to help people get what they want. Maybe it's worth a try. Again, maybe that's not you. Maybe your option is to pray harder, get to more church events, ramp up your Bible reading, fast more. This one is probably the most dangerous because it feels the most legitimate. But if Jesus isn't at the center, and by Jesus I mean the person, not the doctrine, and those two things can be worlds apart, if Jesus isn't at the center, all of that is just another desperate alternative. We all have them. We have to face that reality. We all have them. We all have a plan B. Not consciously, but it's there, waiting for us. And when we're tempted, that's where we go. So what's going to stop us from accessing plan B? Because it's not enough for me to say, don't. Don't do that. It's not good for you, the preacher said. I mean, it may be true, but it's not enough, is it? We all know it's not enough. And notice, that's not the line that the writer to the Hebrews takes. He does say that. Hebrews is full of warnings. But that's not the main thing he says. What's the main thing? The main message of Hebrews is what? Jesus is better. The way to overcome temptation to alternatives, and we all have them, is to know that whatever the alternative, Jesus is better. He's better. That's the message of the whole letter. And it is undoubtedly the message of chapter 7. Jesus is better. Verse 27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is more than the perfect priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself once for all. And that is just not true of our alternatives. We have to keep sacrificing because they never get the job done. One holiday is never enough. One visit to the gravesite, not enough. You always have to fast another day, another week. The man of God always has his hand out. Not Jesus. Perfect priest, perfect sacrifice. Once for all. Do you see the beauty in him? Do you see the freedom in him? Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son is always better. Help us to see him as he is so that we can live in him every single day. Spirit of God, when we are desperate, keep us from reaching for the alternatives. Help us rather to press deeper into our Lord Jesus Christ and to find there what we always find, 
that he is better. Amen.